Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. We produce our podcast in three separate formats. We have our 10-minute lesson series where the aim is to educate and inform on a particular area of policy within that short time frame. We have our seminar series, which gives us the chance to listen back to some really incredible presentations we've had at some past events. And then we have our interview series where we chat to experts on, again, a really wide range of policy topics. But this week, it's one of those. I'm delighted to be joined by quite a large ensemble this week. Back in May of this year, 2023, Coalition 2030 published their report, which was authored by Sori Makahi called Fordest Behind Forced or Falling Behind Further, the human stories that really challenge Ireland's claim to be leaving no one behind. There was a link in the notes. And following on then from that report, a delegation of Coalition 2030 members travelled to the United Nations then in July for the High Level Political Forum on Sustainable Development. That coalition delegation comprised of, we had Megan Carmody, who is the coordinator of Coalition 2030, we had Louise Finan, who's Head of Policy and Programme at DOCUS, with Dr. Saibo O'Neill, who's Coordinator of Stop Climate Chaos, with Belinda Nugent, who's the Community Development Project Leader in ICON, which is the Inner City Organisation Network. We had Dr. James Casey, who's Policy Lead in the Independent Living Movement Ireland, and I was also privileged enough to take part in that delegation. You can find links to all of those organisations and, again, the work that they do in the notes below. We had apologies from one of the members, but the rest of the group are here just supposed to discuss originally the report authored by Sorley and then the Ireland's VNO process, Ireland's VNO presentation at the UN. And really, I suppose, what we brought to the experience and what we brought away from the experience of looking and listening to a huge, really wide array of countries delivering on their voluntary national reviews. And what became apparent when we're having a discussion about sustainable development goals at a global level is that each and every country will need to do its bit. We hope you enjoy. So welcome all. I suppose I had originally hoped just to do a conversation on the coalition's 2030 report and then obviously the conversation got bigger then as the coalition was fortunate enough to be part of a delegation to actually see Ireland present on its VNR. But I might begin with you, Sorry, then just to ask about mm. the impetus behind this report and why Coalition 2030 wrote this report. What was the thinking behind yeah. it? Coalition 2030 were asked to contribute a chapter to the official, the state's VNR, which was a great opportunity and we did that. But it was necessarily kind of following and reflecting a particular style. And I think we wanted to do a report that was a bit more pointed, is a bit more advocacy focused, and that it drilled down into the key theme of the VNR from Ireland, which was kind of the furthest behind first. And just having a look at that from uh, the coalition's perspective and saying, is Ireland really reaching the furthest behind first in its efforts to achieve the SDGs? And who are the furthest behind first in Ireland anyway? And how are they, how are the SDGs impacting on them, if at all? And to bring the voices of the people that we, through the work of the coalition members, identified as being furthest behind first to the fore and giving voice to the experience of those people and saying, this, these are the people who are furthest behind first. 
And these are the people that are being forgotten about by the state. So when the state and government representatives go to international conferences, it, they they talk a very good game and they are very eloquent in their uh, multilateralism. Meanwhile, there's a swathe of people in Ireland left behind who are not experiencing the same kind of things that has been described at multilateral fora. So we wanted to capture that in a report and to use that as an advocacy tool to try to, you know, provoke a bit more action from the government in progressing the SDGs. But that's what I found, like reading through the DNR and reading through other countries' DNRs, it's hard to read them in context with even just sort of the translation, like the certain words that are used. So I don't know whether they mean the same thing there as they do here. Like the example I would use is Uzbekistan's DNR. They talked about building 300,000 comfy housing units in a five-year span. Now, I don't know what that means. So I just wonder, as you said, sorry, when people read Ireland's DNR and you see this big, the, the one that I keep going back to is that big green circle looking at poverty. So if I'm in Uzbekistan and I read that, I would think, okay, Ireland's a wealthy country. It's a Western democracy. Oh, they have no poor people left. That's brilliant. So it is important, I think, to have the voice of civil society really questioning and and pulling those official, as you said, not, not quite spin, but that official story is really important. If you look at the SDGs, you know, as positive as you can and say they could potentially be a great framework and tool for policy making um, in government. And, and it could be, and it should be. It's all about the data and the stats and what you're putting into the SDGs and how you're assessing, how you're measuring. You know, you're only going to get something good out of it if you put something good into it. So it's all about the quality of the data that you're putting into it. And the moment we're falling short of the putting in quality data, so you're getting out, you're not getting out a fair reflection of what society is. So you're we're missing an opportunity for the SDGs to be that kind of framework that gives us something really useful. And I think that that's one of the things that I that kind of disappoint me most is that that is a framework there for us. There's something that, you know, could potentially be really useful for us. But through things like that kind of lack of quality data, we're not making the most of it. Megan, I'll go to you next, I suppose, to pick up on that data thing and and weaving the SDGs in into pretty much everything we do, like that's a key ask, really, isn't it? That the SDGs are not so they're not an add-on, they're not a constraint. As Sorley said, they are a framework. They should really form the basis of government policy. Yeah, exactly. So really the SDGs are a tool for better policy making that reaches everyone in society and is really cognizant of the protected characteristics in human rights legislation in terms of, say, disability, uh, gender, sexuality. And we need to have data disaggregated so that we know who is falling behind and so therefore we can reach them. So one of our key asks is to ask the government to increase financing for disaggregated data collection. The CSO has been doing a good job of of collecting STG data, but not good enough because it's a significant role. It is a very, very big role to get that 
level and depth of data that we need. So what we'd really like to see is the government supporting communities and localities, whether that's at a village level or even county level, supporting county councils to find this data because communities and local institutions are best placed to get that disaggregated data. Only then really we can be able to say that we are reaching those groups. So in the report that Sordi wrote, the furthest behind first or falling behind further, we look at a number of, of groups who in Ireland we see as being furthest behind. So these are groups like travellers, our national ethnic minority, lone parents who the rate of deprivation is just over 45%. And um, one parent families, Roma population, children in particular in direct provision. So really what we need to see is government addressing policy using this lens in advance of policy design. With the SDGs, we've seen them slap a few SDGs onto policies after the fact and not at the target level either. So it's really about thinking ahead, departments working together. There are structures for departments to work together. There's something called the Interdepartmental Working Group. But how that actually works is really quite opaque. For example, the minutes haven't been updated since October 2019. And that's not for lack of asking again and again and again. So we just have questions about how it is being governed. And that ties into data. There has to be governance in order for there to be good data. And we need good data in order to reach people. So it's this multifaceted approach that we're we're calling for that addresses the structural problems that are at the root of us not doing enough on the SDGs despite what the VNR claims. And I think that's the thing that, you know, we, we were fortunate enough to be able to travel to view Ireland presented to VNR and listening to other countries' VNRs and listening to other sessions. It was data or data, whichever you're having yourself, that came up in every single conversation and disaggregated data came up in every single conversation because they're, they're the furthest behind force. So if we look at poverty figure and you say okay you know 13.1 percent of the population live in poverty that's a sizable figure for one thing but as you said it's not it's not that it's it's one here and one here and one here and one here that's big chunks of certain communities so we do know who these people are and we should be able to target our policies then accordingly but that was another thing I think that came up was in terms of ownership of the SDGs at policy level. And if if the Department of Environment, Communications and Climate, I may have that the wrong way around, if they're leading out on this, I don't know how they can impact on the poverty figures if something like social welfare, which would be linked to eradicating poverty or alleviating poverty, poverty comes under the Department of Social Protection. So it's interesting to see how they're actually going to lead out on it. And that's another ask, isn't it, Megan, that, that this be coordinated differently? Yes. Yeah, so really, we want to see much better governance. So the SDG unit appears to have been subsumed into a unit that is called International EU Air Quality and the SDGs. So as you might imagine, it's unlikely that it's at the forefront of any civil servant's mind in that unit. If it is I would love to hear about it, but it, it was quite a surprise to us when it ended up looking like the tail end of, of a much larger unit. It is led by the Department of the Environment, Climate and Communications. If you look at the most recent national implementation plan for the SDGs, they have something like 77% of the actions attributed to them, which is just insurmountable for, for any 
unit. Um, now, a lot of those are low-hanging fruit, but still it requires a significant amount of resourcing, which isn't there at the moment. And it requires, uh, and we see this parroted in other countries around the world, in New York and before, it needs that political will from the very top. And that means it has to be led from a much more significant department, whether that is the Department of the Taoiseach, Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, we need it to just have better governance overall, regardless of, of where it moves to. We have been calling for the Department of the Taoiseach, and we do think that would have a much more positive impact than we're currently seeing. But regardless, it, it just requires better governance overall. Because I think that's the difficulty with the SDGs is that they are so encompassing. They're so, they're so broad in a way that it is going to require inter, interdepartmental or cross-departmental or all-of-government approach to be able to do it. And I think that's, for me, that was the strength really of the coalition that, that travelled to, to see Ireland presented the and all was that we, we were a group of people with different areas of expertise. But when it was all woven together, it was really, really strong. It was really formidable. I'm going to begin then maybe with uh, Louise Finan, just to what, what you brought to that sort of delegation, your area of expertise and what you thought about Ireland's VNR and the whole HLPF process. I'm Louise Finan and I'm the head of policy and programme at DOCUS. So we're the network for international development agencies in Ireland. We have about just under 60 members. I've also been chairing the coalition for the past two years. I'm now uh, no longer the chair. So that wonderful job of working very closely with Megan, I've had to hand over to two very capable people, but I will miss it. It was a brilliant, uh, brilliant two years. But yeah, maybe maybe first kind of where I was coming from in terms of the DOCUS international development hat and chair, chair of the coalition, like it's all mixed together. I can't really separate it anymore in a way. But I think what's really important to always remember with the SDGs is it's not just about domestic policy and it's not just about international policy. It's a mix of both. What we do in Ireland matters just as much as what we do and say on the world stage matters. And I kind of think that's what makes the coalition so powerful. And what I suppose made our trip to New York so powerful was that there was a feeling of, you know, we're very involved in the domestic side. We're watching, we're looking at what's happening. Um, we're very clear what's not working for those people in Ireland, but we're also keen and interested to see what Ireland is saying on the international say, stage and how it's a broker in these big agreements. And that seems to be a, a role that I think Ireland internationally has has played over, I don't know, maybe the last 20 years, certainly in the last 10 more so, I would say, um, become a kind of convener and broker in terms of international agreements. And because of that, I think it behoves us then to really make sure that we are living up to what we say we will do domestically, but also internationally. And part of our international commitments are around official development assistance, so ODA, overseas aid, and making sure we reach that 0.7 target, which was set by the UN uh, member states in the 1970s, I think. And that's 0.7% of GDP, GNI. And we can have lots of arguments over <laughs> GNI. GNI star, GDP, but ultimately it's an expression of a country's wealth. It's an expression of how much a country is willing to invest in overseas development. And then 
subsequently, I mean, that would be kind of one of the basic requirements in terms of our international commitments. Subsequently to the 1970s, 80s, 90s, I think we began as a development community to realise that really we needed to look at the structural causes of inequality globally. So corporation tax, tax systems, sort of failing developing countries um, and siphoning money out of developing countries when they should be staying in there, human rights and business accountability. And I think more recently, climate accountability for for the damage that wealthy nations have done to the climate. And the impact that this is having on more low-income countries and the most vulnerable kind of across the globe. So those are kind of the, I suppose, the international side of the SDGs. And really, the SDGs give you a framework to, to tackle those, to make sure that you are look, you know, living up to your international commitments as a country, but you're also looking at your domestic commitments. And I think that's that's the piece, that intersectionality between the two that really interests me, because I think before the SDGs were agreed to, I think sort of development was for other countries. You know, development was for those poor countries over there. And I think we're beginning to understand more and more that actually as developed as we think we are, we are leaving a lot of people behind and there's huge inequality in countries like ours where, where there shouldn't really, really be, you know. And I think that's why it's quite powerful to go to New York and, and kind of to listen to representatives from the Irish government talk about, you know, what they're doing on the world stage, but then also reflect on maybe what they're not doing in Ireland that they should be doing. That brings me nicely, I suppose, into side when you're talking about borders and climate what we do as a country impacts globally, what other countries do impact us. And if you if you allow me, Saib, I just I cut out a few bits now. So the council identifies that a key part of the just transition approach is to ensure a fair, sustainable distribution of the effort to bring about just transition. And it also looks, I suppose, to recognise that there will be costs linked with the just transition and we have to share them equitably and to address or mitigate them. And I took this from the newspaper, which is that a study published by academics at Dartmouth last year found that heat waves brought on by human caused climate change cost the global economy an estimated 16 trillion US dollars over a 21 year period from the 1990s. So I'm conscious that this is a global conversation when it comes to climate. And when they talk about the costs linked with just transition, there are huge costs if we don't get this right. Yes. Uh, thanks, Suzanne. I'm the coordinator of the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition, which is a little, a little bit like the DOCUS Coalition and the Coalition 2030 in the sense that it's a network of civil society organisations that are all uh, campaigning together for faster and fairer climate action. And we act, you know, uh, domestically, but we are concerned about the global impact of climate change and the inequality in the in the impact. Obviously, most of the fossil fuels that have been combusted that are contributing to global warming and climate breakdown have been burned in developed countries over the last century, uh, contributing massively to global warming, whereas the impacts are more severely being experienced in developing countries, partly because of their geography, but not only their geography, their pre-existing challenges with development, uh, lack of access to clean and affordable energy, biodiversity challenges and all the rest of it. So the sustainable development 
picture is really very complex when you add in that dimension of sort of geopolitics and global inequality. But at a domestic level, we in Ireland have committed uh, under the Paris Agreement to doing our fair share of the global effort to achieve the Paris Agreement temperature goals of holding global warming below two, well below two degrees and pursuing 1.5. And all the science is now telling us that even 1.5 degrees of global warming is very dangerous and we shouldn't be thinking about getting close to two degrees. And yet on a global level, we're on a pathway to three or four degrees warming. And in fact, uh, I read a report just the other day, which said that if all countries had mitigation or climate action plans, essentially, that were like Ireland's, we'd be on a trajectory to four degrees warming, which would be absolutely catastrophic. So the reality is that the onus is on us to take action at a domestic level if we want to convince other countries to do likewise and to contribute our fair share means not just reducing our reliance on fossil fuels and reducing our emissions to net zero. It can't even be just a little bit of a reduction. It has to be all the way. But it's more than that because the Paris Agreement also includes commitments to sustainable development and to climate finance and transparency in, in all of these matters. So climate action is only one of the SDGs, SDG 13, but it it is one of those SDGs that really links to almost all of the others. And none of the other SDGs can be achieved without it. So, for example, SDG 7 is about providing affordable, clean energy to all. And obviously that has to be renewable energy. And so in advance of going to New York, we learned that due to the kind of setbacks that have been experienced because of COVID and in relation to climate finance and the kind of continued expansion of the fossil fuel industry and its uh, support coming from fossil fuel subsidies, over 700 million people will still not have access to even electricity by 2030. So in turn, if you've got to imagine what that looks like in developing countries, people are using local biomass for cooking fuel. That's depleting the forestry. That's impacting on SGG 15, which is life on land. But it also means that people are experiencing very high levels of indoor air pollution because of the way that uh, uh, food is cooked indoors with this kind of biomass. From a developmental challenge, it's it's absolutely very far reaching. And that doesn't even get into the question of climate impacts and how countries can be prepared for those if they don't have access to the basic infrastructure in terms of health, education and and all the other networks that you need, the public services that you need and that the sustainable development goals are supposed to provide. So for, for adaptation, excuse me, and mitigation, uh, all of the SDGs have to be achieved together if we're going to achieve SDG 13 on climate action. So it's the interlinkages of them all. Sometimes that can make it seem daunting and, and impossible. But at, on the climate side, there's been 30 years of work developing policies, developing technologies and developing even the financial tools as, as and, and, and ways to support clean energy. And so the barriers are not... In, in the sense of we don't know what to do. We know exactly what we have to do, but it just there's a problem in terms of facing down the fossil fuel industry and also facing down those countries that are serious obstacles to progress. And they include major developing, developed countries like the US, which is likely to parade itself now with a more green face. But it's also 
you know, the fact that you have other countries like Russia who are now kind of gaming the international system and using energy as a kind of political weapon in various ways. And many countries, developed countries and fossil fuel companies are investing in fossil fuel resources and mining and other resources in developing countries, sort of putting their development trajectories uh, in peril, essentially, because none of those types of developments deliver the kind of material well-being that is desired under the sustainable development goals. So we're facing into sort of very serious kind of political challenges um, and the development, uh, sorry, the achievement of SDG 13 really requires a much uh, heightened focus on delivering the political will to achieve all the SDGs and to putting sustainable development at the core of public policy, both nationally and internationally. It's interesting when you were talking about the US there, I had picked up a report from the Commission on Voluntary Service and Action. So they're, they're a US organisation and they have done a civil society BNO in the States. Because as far as they're concerned, the United States of America is not engaged with the SDGs at all. It's quite damning, but it just goes to show that if one of the biggest nations in the entire world isn't engaged in the climate transition conversation, is seeing increasing levels of poverty, is seeing increasing levels of inequality, is seeing increasing infant mortality, maternal mortality rates, uh, lowering education levels. And this is, again, for a Western, what we would think when we go to somewhere like New York, it's the hope of, you know, the, the leaders of the free world. But if somewhere like that isn't on board, it is a really difficult job to get the entire globe to move forward. Um, I'm going to move on then to James. And just because you had the the pleasure and the joy of actually addressing the United Nations when we were there. It was it was it was a great experience. I was just I just repeating what everyone else said, Suzanne. I mean, I I mean the complexity of the whole situations and and struck me and and the fact that everyone's fighting their little corner and everyone's fighting their their little spot, whether it's climate or social justice or you know whatever rights. And you kind of go, it doesn't work like this, you know. So everything is a compromise and a communication and i think that's that's how we we achieve things when we, we work together and I, I suppose even coming from my own job here it's it's difficult because what we do as opposed to what you'll see in in the widespread media about individual issues that need to be fixed i think that's on a global stage that's what's happening especially in the western world i mean even when we when i think about like and i was thinking about this for for a few years about the climate if you want renewable energy then you need to start getting on with other countries you need to start getting on with countries that can provide you with those goods the reason you know the geopolitical thing as i was saying comes into it all the time with you want to use combustion engines you know just get on with a few countries if you want to use renewable energies for all that technology you need to get on a lot of countries so even communication the politics the politics come into it it was an interesting and and but I, I think the conversations that i had with other people there was fantastic and the connections i made and and continue to make again it was it was a bizarre situation and it was it was it was lovely to be there i i suppose i felt a lot of responsibility too in, in doing it because you're not representing you or you're you're representing so many different people and i, I don't know if it was megan or i don't know who said it but you're representing Ireland, you know, you're, you're, the government is great and they're going to go up there and they put up their lovely, their lovely swish, slick VNR video. And I'm kind of going, that's, you know, I mean, this looks lovely, but it's a board vulture video. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a tours in Ireland one. And then, you know, you're talking to other countries and other people from other countries in civil society and how they're amazed too. They're, they're VNRs, they're, they're mm-hmm. international reviews or 
The Saudis were a perfect example. The Saudis had a fantastic, lovely model. This bizarre, was it a 3D model of this massive renewable space they were going to build in the desert called the line, which was literally a line. And I, I, an acquaintance of mine there, they went up to them and they said to them, um, how, how much is it going to be to, to live here? Like, can, can ordinary people live there? And they just, they just blocked her. They ignored her. She didn't get a cup of coffee with her little Arabic coffee. So there was kind of strange things like that going on. But the process of the, the writing thing, I just kind of fell into that and, the, and, the, and the, the statement itself. I mean, it was interesting that, you know, that statement, I suppose, was a compromise. And it was it was it was it was a tough job for Megan to kind of get that together because there was there was so many different organizations that needed to get in. We only had two minutes. We had less than two minutes. As we found out, the mic switches off. The mic switches minutes. off at three five seconds towards the end. And I didn't want to rush it, yeah. but I was trying to. Um, also, I kind of, you know, Megan had to give me a little kick to get moving because I was looking the other way. I think it was important that we 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 put those things to them. I mean, Ireland has the worst, you know, gender affirming healthcare in the EU. Never worse. Simple as that. You know, it's a fact. You know what I mean? That's not. These things have been checked. These are facts. Ecologically, we're 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 doing horrendously bad. Look at our look at our inland rivers. You know, when it comes to social justice, you know the the people at the bottom are getting hammered. I see it every day of the week. You know, how do you how do you tie that in with you know corporate Ireland with the Ireland of, you know of of the big buildings along the quays in Dublin or these massive offices in Galway or whatever the Galway races? You can't. So I think there's a there's a sharp termism, not only in 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 terms of Ireland's you know approach to this. But I think also in terms of the global approach to this, whether that's conflict, whether that's international cooperation, whether that's international aid, environmental uh, actions. I mean, look what's happening in Canada now. We, we, we were in New York and we could see the fires. We could smell the smoke and see the fires. And it was it was like, look, how much more pathetic fallacy do you need? I mean, it's right there. It, it was a highly it was a highly you know privileged position to be there. But you felt there was a privilege and you felt that. You know, well, I felt the responsibility of of not messing up, and and that was there, and to make sure that there's people relying on you to do the job, you do the job, and it was it was wonderful to kind of talk to other countries and people from other countries, primarily from NGOs, to be honest, which in civil society, where the their their issues are similar to ours, whether that's in a different you know space, and how frustrated they are, but also, and this is I suppose a really important thing, is not just how frustrated, but how they're open to to cooperation. And I think now, more than any other time, international cooperation is possible than before five, six years ago, purposely because everyone in the world has gotten used to working remotely in some way or another, if they can. You know, I've I've already come back and I've already had meetings with people in in, in Southern Africa and in Asia and in um Southeast Asia as well. So we're we're having these meetings already, we're having these chats already from the SDG summit about about how we can work in international cooperation. Yeah, the statement itself, that was that was um that was an interesting process, I suppose. I was very conscious of what was going on and what I was saying. They're not my words, they're everybody else's words, you know. And it was just to kind of make sure that they're delivered. I hope they had an impact. I mean the Portuguese picked up on it. I didn't I don't remember any of it. Um the Portuguese picked up on it and I think I think sometimes it's okay to stir the bucket. You need to. That's what we're there to do. That's what we're paid to do. You know, we're not government officials. We're not policy officials. And and that's important because otherwise nothing changes if you don't get people riled up. But you have to get people riled up with a purpose too. Like you can't get them riled up and then go, all right, song, good luck, we'll see you. No, you have to get them riled up and say, here's a process. Look, there is these SDGs here. 
these SDGs, as I was saying, Louise saying, they're interlinked. Like you can't have one without the other. You know, you can't have one one space without the other. And and for me, I suppose, and I went to a lot of the side events too, was listening to the things is that you have to link it with other people. You have to bring everyone along. You have to to compromise, but also you have to make climate change important for everybody. You show that, but also you offer them an alternative. I, I mean, even for the simplest things, like we're only bringing in recycling into 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 supermarkets now in Ireland. You know, it's crazy. This should have been done 10 years ago, but we're here now. So get moving. Let's do it. Public transport. This is good for everyone. Yeah, I'm still I'm still a bit surreal about the experience. I mean, it wasn't overwhelming, but I remember the first day myself and Su- Suzanne, we, we went to the thing and we just we just sat around. And we were like, where are we? Like, this is a very bizarre experience, but it was yeah. kind of and there was a little bit of imposter syndrome for the first day. And then you kind of go, do you know what? Do you know, I mean, you know, I'm here to do a job and I'm yeah. going to do it. And and you took the gloves off. I found I tell you what I found really interesting and really productive was the weekend with the major groups that Megan was at, um, with with Ali Henneman was doing. There was there was people from uh Zambia, there was people from Mongolia talking about their their experiences with the VNRs and their experiences with the shadow reports and the reviews. And that was very productive because you were hearing stories that you could you know, relate to, even though they're in very different countries, very different parts of the world, very different cultures. But this is part of humanity. So that was a, an interesting, um, an interesting space to be in. And I suppose the internationalism of the whole thing was was an interesting part to take into account, but also to kind of go, well, you know, we, we have something we can learn from you, but we've also something we can share with you. I found the setup quite extraordinary because I, I know we had witnessed that person. They had their two minutes to address the panel and they had said all their bits and then they went I have three questions and their mic got cut off so like it was so it was heartbreaking to watch somebody this is their chance to address the UN and they just timed their speech really badly but the other thing I just you're talking about kind of preparation what fascinated me James on that first day is the keynote speaker was a wheelchair user Eddie Ndobu and we were off to one side in in the big people, you know, if you look up the General Assembly Hall of the UN, it's that big, massive, the big, massive fancy room that you see on the telly. And there was maintenance workers behind me for probably a good hour. And then they started to wheel in like these massive, they were like walls. And I turned around, I went, is this what happened? Is, is, was what I think happening, what I think is happening? I said, are you having to build a ramp for the keynote? And they went, yeah. And I said, you're telling me the home of the UN COPD doesn't have an inbuilt ramp for a speaker to get to the podium to deliver an address in the UN. And he said, oh, we're, we're supposed to be putting in a lift. And I just went, oh, I can't cope with this. But like, it took six men an hour to be there to to put a ramp in for for any and, to and they told the us to get out of the way too even though <laughs> they said get that wheelchair out of the way yeah i think i think that's it but he was a rock star too that guy i mean he works for the un i mean he's yeah. he's at the elite top of that he's not some poor old devil in in, in indonesia that has you know can't even get a wheelchair yeah. or yeah. some woman with six kids in 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 zimbabwe that's you know has got so i think i think the thing is there yeah and i think you know if a rock star can't even get that then you're kind of wondering but then again you kind of go right well there's a lot of freedom there the rock star can't get that but maybe we can start shouting about that because we're not rock stars and i think yeah that was interesting yeah and they said they turned around to the we wheelchair the way we need to build this ramp for the super electric wheelchair that's going yeah, in there yeah the yeah. fancy one yours wasn't fancy enough i don't know i was i wasn't fancy enough we, we were too scruffy so <laughs> um 
and he he he, he works him. I think you know it was interesting too to see how how it's structured and then the bureaucracy that's mm-hmm. in it, but it also it, it, the mecha- mechanisms that work within that space um, and how it can how it can be utilized too, like the ecosoc and how it can be utilized. I think there is very great opportunities for for it to do something, but like anything else, it always it's always going to take cooperation. It's always going to take cooperation, unfortunately, compromise and communication. Because I think what happens sometimes is that we communicate our own desires a lot and our own spheres. We're, we're, we're not exactly taking into account other people's because that's what we're passionate about or that's something that we've always, always been taken into account. And that's great. That'll fix certain problems, issues here, this little one, and, and putting a patch in the, in the leaking boat. But we have to take a little bit more of a... And it mightn't... You know what? It's better having... Six billion people doing something ninety percent right, than one billion people doing something or half. And I don't know, I'm not great with numbers. Fifty million people doing something excellently well. I think that's probably the the best compromise we can get, but we don't have a choice to do it. There's no there's no choice. We have to do it. I'm going to circle back around to Sorry, I think I was just I was actually trying to find out which countries have and which countries haven't actually submitted BNRs. And the only thing I was able to find is that so far 177 countries have presented at least once. Now, I I would have been able to go in and build a spreadsheet and go in individually and try and match them all up. But I suppose it just shows that there are countries who have never submitted a BNR to this process, even though they've signed up. How important is that voluntary national review process, do you think, to the whole delivery of the SDGs or is that an unfair question? No, I mean it's got its weaknesses. It's it's not perfect and you could be pretty cynical about it. It's as important as civil society and governments want to make it. It's a great opportunity for us and I think this is part of our overall advocacy approach Megan wasn't it you know just to try to make a bit of a splash around a process which, you know, in the greatest scheme of things, it, it's not huge. It's not the most significant moment in the government's calendar. It's not even the most significant moment in that department's calendar. It's a moment for civil society to latch onto and make the most of, I think. It also focuses the mind, you know, trying to look at it a positive, it also focuses the mind for a moment, for a period, for the civil servants who have to work in it. And I think it does maybe generate some insights and lessons that perhaps civil servants and policymakers wouldn't have considered before. Yeah, it's not it's not going to change. It's not it's not a huge event, but it is it has the potential to be really important for civil society, I think. And I, I think for me, that's why I think this is important to have this conversation and discuss what we learned and what we saw. So I've, yeah, I was just going to come in because on the climate side of things, reporting has become extremely important part of the UNFCCC process and the uh, the COPs, if you like, uh, that, that lead up to the Paris Agreement. Now, the architecture and the legal obligations in the Paris Agreement are much more advanced than they are for the Sustainable Development Goals. But there are interesting parallels there because the whole Paris Agreement is built around the idea, the very concept of kind of international peer review. So countries make voluntary commitments that are called NDCs, and then they're 
subject to a review, both by the UNFCCC Secretariat, which is consisting of then, you know, representatives of other countries, and they review your country's uh, uh, commitments. Um, and they're also reviewed in many, many other ways by civil society and by different other international agencies. So I think to sort of make the VNR process work better, it probably needs to be institutionalized in in a similar way to the 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 measures in the Paris Agreement, and it's not that the, the Paris that it's not a quick fix. It doesn't make everybody do everything that they were pretending to do but weren't to. But it definitely takes it up a gear, because my concern about the VNR process is that um, given that you have all those issues with the data and data collection and reporting and monitoring. It's very tempting for countries to be extremely selective in how they present their VNRs. The ones that I heard at the the UN were it was really very interesting to hear Mm. Saudi Arabia's one, for example. But a country like Saudi Arabia doesn't give many opportunities for civil society to challenge its processes and its reporting. But sometimes within the international system, you can create opportunities for civil society from outside the country, like we have with the Paris Agreement. So there are ways to fix that problem and to uh, improve it. But that's going to require concerted political effort at an international level to kind of push the sustainable development goals. And we only have six and a half or so years, is it six and a half or seven and a half years left before 2030 when we're supposed to have achieved them. So if the countries who signed up to these are serious about delivering them, they need to have a rethink of the the institutional mechanisms at international level that monitor progress and maybe something a little bit more with a bit more teeth than the voluntary national review or voluntary national review with kind of some institutional oversight. I found that fascinating as well. The, the geopolitics of it, the the questions that were coming from the floor, the questions that were coming from civil society, depending on the, the country at the on the panel and the types of issues that were impacting different parts of the world was really, really interesting. Megan, as de facto leader of the trip to New York, was it worth it? What did we achieve? Call me leader. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was it was a privilege to organise everyone's accommodation. <laughs> and pretty <games. laughs> I definitely think it was worth it. Like Sorely mentioned, it was a moment and we don't have enough time to not capitalise mm-hmm. on any moments when they arise. So we have to use all of them and make as much of a song and dance and deploy our resources as effectively as possible. And I think we did that. So we we actually got the department and Eamon Ryan, who was presenting the VNR and his team to change their language in their VNR, in their presentation to the UN, which is massive. And I think we can't underestimate that. So we referenced it earlier that in our VNR, there's a lovely, shiny, big green circle for STG 1, no poverty, which Emmett says we're then therefore achieving no poverty because the key says green and green is achieving and we have a full green circle. So therefore achieving no poverty and we're achieving apparently 81% of our targets. But we met with Minister Ryan and his team the day before our VNR was presented and grilled them on this and, and articulated very clearly our dissatisfaction with that and how misleading it is when evidently to anybody who lives in Ireland, we are nowhere near achieving no poverty. So it turns out they were saying that we are achieving 
their interim targets that they had set, which are pretty opaque to everyone. So instead of saying they're achieving their targets, they said they're achieving their interim targets. Seems like a small thing, but it actually was a very big impact. They've also committed to engaging with the CSO because they evidently aren't happy with that, the data misleading the public, frankly. And they've committed to working with the Sustainable Development Solutions Network in Ireland, which was established, I think, in February of this year, also on data. So that was very positive. We had an extremely productive meeting with the minister and we met with the mission over in New York, who hosted us for a coffee morning, along with some other civil society representatives. And I think those relationships and building a positive relationship isn't very measurable, but it doesn't mean it's not important. So it was a huge moment, but it's it's only one. So we have the SDG Summit coming up now in September and Ireland, we're a small country, but we have punched above our weight in terms of international SDG governance, notwithstanding the fact that we're lagging domestically. But we are actually co-facilitating this political declaration for the SDGs, which will be unveiled at the SDG Summit. So this summit is actually the second high-level political forum of this year. And in September, it's under the auspices of the General Assembly rather than ECOSOC, which was in July. So we have a huge responsibility. You know, the UN Secretary General has said this is going to be the center point of 2023. It's a kickstart for the SDGs. So we have an opportunity now to do the types of things that Sai was talking about, reorienting the international monitoring and reporting structures so that they actually are helping us to achieve. Because one thing that struck me, I think it was on the very first day of the HLPF, I forget who, who was saying it, but globally we're only achieving 12% of the targets, mm-hmm. but yet every country is going up and saying how well they're doing. If we were all doing so well, we would be much doing much better than 12%. So someone's telling a fib, but Ireland was somewhat honest, I think. Mm-hmm. Eamon Ryan went on a little bit of a rant, which is, I would encourage listeners to, to go and watch. Mm-hmm. Very passionate speech, but yeah, um, make up your own mind about it. But he does mention a couple of areas where we are falling behind, which was in stark contrast to authoritarian regimes that were highlighting how much they care about the SDGs. So, you know, we're, we're not the worst country, but we can actually just do so much more, even though we're small. And that was, I think, a key message from the coalition was that we have the ability to be world leaders in this space. Like we can we can be heading out on all of this. Sorley, you want to come in there? Yeah, I mean, just two two things. One is like, so I've triggered something in my mind or made me think of something. And it's about kind of accountability. And, you know, the UNFCCC is something that has developed and evolved. It's a much more mature and sophisticated framework than the SDGs is at the moment anyway. And one of the things that it has is that it has to have kind of a, it does have kind of a, a regional and almost kind of a country level peer accountability. People know what other people are doing and people hold them to account. Countries kind of hold each other to the account to a degree and in a way that the SDGs isn't at the moment, but it would be great if we were able to get to that point. That Because that's what we need. It's the accountability piece that's totally missing from the SDGs that is kind of um, preventing it from being all it could be. And just on two other things, just in that vein, there are huge challenges to the SDGs. Let's not beat around the bush in this. Policy coherence is a huge one of them. The, the, the Irish state is doing so many things incoherently that undermine its climate objectives, its, tra- its uh, overseas development objectives, all across the board. 
it's 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 a it's a bit of a mess really. And then the other thing about the SDGs is, and we have to say this, is that there are real flaws in it. It depends on a model of economic growth that is incompatible with our climate goals. And we, and, and we need to say that in this space as well, that we're at least aware of these things and that while it's not, it's not perfect, there are things, there's lots, as, we, as somebody I know says, there's lots of ground to run into to change things for the better. But they are very imperfect, you know, and that we should, we are we're aware of that, and we're, you know, we still think that they represent something that we can uh, work with and, and and do something good with. So I just wanted to make those points. I got into the habit every morning. I listened to every single morning Elbow's New York Morning. I'm not going to sing it, and I don't think I'd be able to pay for the the rights to be able to play it. But the lyrics of it, he sings, "Oh my God, New York can talk." Somewhere in all that talk is all the answers. Everybody owns the great ideas and it feels like there's a big one around the corner. And I was listening to that every day going up to the UN thinking somewhere in all of this, as somebody said, if you can get one good idea every day, something that triggers you every single day, it'll be well worth it. So I'm going to maybe challenge everybody to see, Louise, did you get any 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 answers on all the talk? Was there, was there a big idea that you left with? God, I'd be a far wealthier woman uh, than I am <laughs> if I got those answers. But uh, for me, the whole experience, I think, just kind of fermented or confirmed the importance and the power of civil society globally. Mm. So not just in Ireland, but but globally. And it was, I suppose, you're working on your own stuff and you're you're kind of tunnel vision into what you're dealing with and what you're battling with it's really it's really good and and important to kind of look outside of that and to realize that actually people in neighboring countries but also in very far away far away countries are battling with pretty much the same issues to a greater or lesser extent and we're in a really lucky position in Ireland for sure but I went to one session on gender-based violence violence against women and it was sponsored by the African Union and predictably then it was mainly African women speakers and oh my god they were so powerful and they were so brilliant and it was like the the message was this needs to change we need to stop talking about this we need to tackle this like we've been talking about that in Ireland for how long you know and in recent years like it's it's been quite loud, the talk around gender-based violence and attacks on women and, and, and doing something about it. But it's like, we need to do something, but like the answers are there. The answers are there. It's political will globally, nationally, it's political will. And like, it's so important for civil society to continually point that out, to continually say it over and over again, no matter what country you're in. You know, like the majority of governments are doing their best. But in some cases, their best isn't good enough. And we need to be strong enough, vocal enough to be able to point that out and to, and to then work with them to say let's figure this out like I've never solved a problem on my own ever as smart as I think I am I really haven't so like I think there has to be a willingness across the board 
to work out these problems together because you know that's what civil society is there to do really is to to help work out the problems of the whys the why we aren't why we aren't solving this and I think yeah just just it was a great experience to remind me that you know it's happening in every country we're we're all we're all trying to do the same thing and we will get there it's just a little bit slower than you'd like at times (laughs) but that's key I mean women aren't going to solve the problem of violence against women James, what did you, what was your, what was your big, your one big takeaway or your great idea? I mean, you've already touched on, I suppose, the, the connections that you made. A lot of, like, a lot of ideas. I, got, I, I took a lot from it. I mean, it has, I suppose it does fundamentally change, yeah. But it also, I suppose, it, 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 it gives the idea as well that civil society is important. However, some, like I'm just speaking from my own sphere of things that I wonder how... I wonder, like, I'm just going to talk about disability because that's what I know about in this specific instance. Um, in Ireland, we're not even represented on an international stage in, in that disability thread. We were represented in Coalition 2030 and through NGO major organisations, but the vested interests in the other sphere, the international formal uh, structures, is is apparent to me. And, I'm, and I wondered then, uh, when I was listening to Sive and talking, having a conversation with Sive or with Megan or Suzanne or with Louise was and other people was is this in other countries is this like who runs the who who's actually having the conversations here and how do we how do we offer a solution to that or offer a a resistance to that because resistance equals solutions and it gets people motivated and 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 I think that's it, it kind of just gave me more ideas about how this can be how it can be done and it can give me ideas too that a lot of people are like Louise was saying, you don't solve a problem by yourself. You solve a problem through, we call them buzz sessions at work, and we have buzz sessions, and we solve a problem like that, or we offer a solution. We, we don't necessarily solve a problem, but we offer a solution to a challenge that, or a predicament that we're in. So that that got me thinking. Um, and it also got me thinking about how, how much we can do if we can work together. And I know this sounds quite trite, and it quite, quite sounds quite contrary, and I am contrary, and I am trite sometimes, but there is so much we can do in international cooperation that is now achievable it might be only a small thing but you know little fires are the ones that start the bigger ones that's a bad analogy because of climate change little sparks are what starts revolutions <laughs> sorry that's a really bad one um but i think that was that's what i what i took from it that there's stuff we're doing here that isn't been done anywhere else because we have the freedom and the luxury mm-hmm. to do that and it's that if we can work with other international organizations and other groups wherever they are and see what can happen and see what we can do. And I think, too, reaching those that are disenfranchised is, is a big thing. Um, I know the union major groups were there, the youth major groups were there, and they were cool kids. But there there are there is there other groups, too, that we could be talking to? Is there other youth groups that aren't parts of that? So I think it's really about bringing that sort of. I don't want to say oddball mixed together, alternative mixed together, and seeing what they can offer and what we can offer. So I thought it was, I thought it was, although there was issues that disheartened me in many ways, there was a lot of stuff that that really motivated me and motivated me to talk to people. And with talk comes ideas and comes mm-hmm. campaigns and comes cooperation. So yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Sai, what did you come away with? Well, for me, the, the, the best event that I attended was an evening 
a civil society event hosted by the women's major group, a sort of coalition of different NGOs that work at at UN level. And they organized an event about activism and advocacy, and they shared kind of tips and strategies and stories. And I'll just give you one of the examples that really resonated with me. About 30 years ago, there was, I mean, I, I mean this wouldn't be unique to the Philippines in any way, but there was a, a kind of a really clear outbreak or sort of situation around gender-based violence that made its way into the headlines and onto the political agenda. And the president of the Philippines decided that every police station needed a desk with a woman at it, ready to uh, deal with any complaints from women experiencing domestic violence or gender-based violence. And so that was a mandate he delivered to the police authorities, but didn't come with any resources. So it was actually the women's groups in the Philippines that spent a number of years then researching how to implement this policy and figuring out how to fundraise for it. And they actually fundraised for these extra uh, uh, police resources. And now as a result of their campaigning after 30 years, every police station has a desk. And now obviously that doesn't that doesn't make gender-based violence go away, but it's at least a step towards addressing it at a really important point at a step along the way. And so the conclusion from that workshop, and there was many, many gems of wisdom that came out of it, was that we have to translate these big ticket, complicated, abstract SDG goals and all the terminology into kind of real world changes that make a difference to people's lives. And that's a challenge for many of us who work in quite specific policy areas. So one of the key recommendations was that we have to learn to listen. We have to learn the UN speak. We have to learn how to speak to government. But we also have to figure out what they're saying to us and translate that back into things we can communicate to our audiences at a local level. And we have to learn to frame our demands in a way that the government will accept. So we, we act as interlocutors, if you like, as as uh, mediators between the general public and sometimes very vulnerable communities that aren't always great at articulating their own needs and don't get heard when they do. So we have this critical role to play. And so one of the most experienced advocates there at that particular workshop was talking about don't waste time talking about your organization and how you're structured and who you are or anything like that. Just be brief and succinct and limit yourself to one to three asks at a time. And I thought this was fantastic because that kind of practical sort of toolkit of campaigning is, is something we hardly ever get around to. And we try to learn it from each other by osmosis, but sometimes that's very slow. So it's easier if somebody just tells you how to do it. <laughs> so one to three asks at a time. And don't talk about your organization. Just get struck into the issues, you know, frame your demands in language that the government understands and that you can turn into language your audience understands. I thought that was great. I mean, that is brilliant because as we saw, like that poor unfortunate who had the mic and then said, I have three questions and then the mic cut out. I mean, but because they had spent the two minutes with, I'd like to congratulate the government of on their excellent presentation. I kind of go, no, no, get rid of all that. That's all gibberish. Just get, get to your three points kind of thing. So like, that is key. Megan, what were your kind of key takeaways? What did you come away with? Yeah, so I have a few, but uh, the main one, I think for me, and it's, yeah, chimes with what Sorley was saying about some of the issues with the SDGs. So 
personal bugbear of mine is part of SDG 8 around economic growth because it, it directly contradicts other SDGs, especially when you're looking at, um, in so-called global north countries where the amount of resource consumption and fossil fuel use in the pursuit of economic growth is obviously driving climate change and our economic model, which has been exported around the world, is, I believe, at the, the root of the ecological crisis that, that we're seeing and the fact that we're transgressing so many planetary boundaries. So for me to hear beyond GDP come up in that room, CR4, where most of the talks took place from all types of countries yeah. was really validating, I think. It's such a complex natty problem because it's so intertwined with debt and with the amount of votes you have in the world bank and to address this you really have to change like the international financial architecture but i'm not so despondent about the potential for that happening now after the hlpf because primarily hearing all of those countries but also i was also at a women's major group event and it was um it felt more like an activist event and there was a she was a veteran of the women's movement. Her name is Barbara Adams. And when she spoke, like everyone cheered. I didn't know who it was, but everybody else in the room seemed to. And she's been around the block. But she she said that, you know, now is the time for this beyond GDP, for getting away from those outdated methods of progress that just don't actually align with well-being in most uh, global North countries. Anyway, it's not advocating for not growing in countries that need to grow, where it is still like correlating with improvements in health, improvement in education. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that we have to measure progress a different way. And she she's she said she has been, you know, sticking off this hymn sheet for a long time, but actually now this is the point at which she thinks there is a window. There is political appetite. There was a Beyond Growth conference this year hosted by the European Parliament. So I think now, yeah, it does feel quite exciting. And I think this is something that we could we could push. That was the most validating thing for me. And also just personally being involved in a couple of side events was an amazing experience. There was one where the deputy director of the uh, Sustainable Development Solutions Network was introducing the event. And that was pretty cool because I'd read his name loads of times on papers. I was like, oh, that's that guy. I'm speaking shortly. I'm going to allow myself also the uh, the, the same question because it was the same things that came up in our every session. Again, like the, the figures, we need access to accurate data. But then that was always followed up then by that point of resourcing and financing. So it's one thing to figure out what's happening, who's it happening to, and then what. So like exactly that side, how are you gonna, you've got your, you've got your problem, you've got your solution, that now also needs to be financed. I mean, the organisation I work for is very much evidence-based, solution-focused. So again, there was a lot of that. You, you could see a lot of that. The policy coherence thing came up a huge amount as well. Everything is interconnected. But it's that global to national, to regional, to local. And again, at one of the side events I was at, that's what she had said. These matter, and how she put it was, where the action is, where life gets lived. So for her, that was the key thing was, you can have these conversations in, in this space on a global level, but what does it mean for you when you go home and close your front door? If you're lucky enough to have a front door, do you what kind of you know, do you have access to running water? Do you have access to energy? Do you have access to education and health? 
what kind of employment opportunities are there. So that was that was really key as well. I think just that the, the conversation from local all the way up through to global and all the way back down again. And you're right, like we were in such a privileged position, I suppose, to be civil society that was able to critique that was the thing as well that really struck me was that for some countries there's no room for critique there's no room to sit with your government i mean at one of the side events again we had irish government there we were able to engage in in conversations in respectful honest open conversations like that is a privilege to be in new york is a privilege to be in the un is a privilege so you can kind of see how i suppose even that space it's important, as as James said, to be able to bring the collective voice. If only one person gets to speak for two minutes, that they need to bring as much with them into that two minutes as they possibly can. But my the side events, I seem to I don't know how I seem to end up with the same thing over and over again. But energy, community led and community owned energy generation, energy creation, energy production seemed to be the theme that I was picking up on a, a huge amount. And I thought if if a really remote small island somewhere can organize to have renewable energy production owned by the communities, we should be able to do something so similar. You know, as you said, the solutions are there, the answers are there, we know what to do. It's probably political will, because I kind of think if a community takes back, uh, I suppose for want of a better word, the, you know, if we seize the means of production, if we're no longer having to 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 pay for energy at the, at the rate we currently do like that frees up a lot of your income for different things i just thought it was really interesting as james was saying like to, you know indigenous populations around the world how they're approaching their energy production but as i've said if it still means that there's going to be hundreds of millions of people without energy or without access to energy like that's a, a key thing i think i just want to say just from having done that re- report one of the things that I learned was, well, one of the things that I was reminded of was that the state, I mean, we started off by talking about the furthest behind first. I mean, that was the theme of the, the, the report. And two things that struck me when I did the report was one, that poverty is a political choice. It's the consequences of decisions that are made politically by men in the main. And that has to give some encouragement that the solutions to poverty lie in political choices as well and other things, but that there is um, potential in political choices to address things that we need to see addressed. And also that the, it's not like the state doesn't know that these people are being left behind. Loads of research has been commissioned, uh, loads of surveys and analysis has been done. The state knows that, that 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 they're there. It's just that the, the measures that they introduce aren't ambitious enough, or they don't get implemented, or they're done on an ad hoc basis. So again, while that's kind of depressing at one level, it's also very encouraging. You know, we're not. It's not a complete us and them when it comes to kind of the state and people being left behind. It's just not quite at the level it needs to be sometimes it's way very far from the level it needs to be but that you know just to make sure that the measures that are introduced are implemented that they are ambitious enough that they're not done on an ad hoc basis that they're done on a sustained basis i think some of the solution to the things that we're looking at in that report are in doing those things 
I mean, that's the thing. Like, these are ambitious targets. This is zero poverty by 2030, not the 2% in the roadmap for social inclusion. These are all achievable things as we are awash with money at this particular moment in time. The evidence is there, but it, it is that thing of the data, the policy, and then it's the implementation and the accountability of those policy pieces, I think, is, is really key. Yeah, just one final point because of the the opportunity, but um, to say that at the SDG summit, the government, like all governments that will be there, and this will be a heads of state situation, they are being asked to come with a very concrete commitment. And there's actually a platform online where they're asked to submit their, their commitment. So it's very practical. And in the report that Sorley wrote and researched it with our allies and our members, we have some really clear solutions that, that they can offer some very specific policy suggestions. But one that I want to pull out because it's really novel and it also resonates with a lot of the international developments at the moment is that of a future generations commissioner. So a lot of the problems we're facing are extremely complex and they defy political or budget cycles or standard ones at least which means that we have to have structures for acting in the best interests of everyone for the long term, including those not yet born. And most of those people are going to be in lower middle income countries. Uh, we don't have a structure for that at the moment, even though the definition of sustainable development defined in 1987 is development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. There we go. Yeah, we don't have a structure for that at present, but Wales very innovatively established a future generations commissioner on a statutory footing. And their role is to analyse policy that could have an impact on future generations and provide input to policymakers and advise them and tell them what they should or shouldn't do. But they don't they don't make policy, they, they advise. And a really notable outcome of that was that they actually stopped a new motorway being built and all future road development and that money is now going towards sustainable transport so that's something that that we could do we would be the second country ever in the world to implement this role and it's something that the government you know we're awash at money like you said we could fund this but needs to be beyond political or electoral electoral cycles should be at least a seven-year term and it's something that i think ireland could do really well we're a really innovative country in terms of policies we've shown that time and time again and I don't think there's any reason why we can't uh, do this one. I think that's that was so important. I, I think I, we were both at a, an event where the then Future Generations Commissioner spoke and she was extraordinary. And to me, that was the key thing was the, they had, she had accountability. So her department had accountability. They had teeth. So they were able to look at these policies and hold, go back and say, well, show me, show me how this is sustainable. But it was the lens as well. So you're looking at transport, not just through a transport lens. You were looking at transport through a health lens. You were looking at transport through an education lens. You were looking at transport through all of these different ways. So she said, even just replacing cars with electric cars still means you could be two hours on the M50. Is that the answer? Maybe, maybe not. But it was so interesting to see how they approached all of these things. And again, it's a small country. It's, I mean, it's got devolved government, but I just think the, that was the, one of the messages I suppose we were sending is that Ireland has the ability and the opportunity to be a world leader in, in some of these areas. Just to, 
to finish off with one other juicy uh, comment that came up in that workshop I attended about activism, the facilitator emphasised how we need to be a collective, that we can't change things if there's too much noise and too many sort of disparate groups campaigning essentially for the same things. And one person mentioned this juicy thing where in New York State, if a legislator gets 10 calls, 10 phone calls, they have to bring it to the floor of the state Senate. So we underestimate our power. We underestimate the power of collective action. So if we can organize 10 of our friends to make a phone call to some New York state senator, it gets to the floor of the House. That's politics in a democracy. We live in a democracy. We're lucky to live in a democracy. So really, it points to the importance of coalitions like uh, Coalition 2030 and coordinating that kind of action, because only together can we realize these changes. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Any organisations in Ireland who are interested in the work of Coalition 2030 and would like to know more can email infocoalition2030 at gmail.com. That information is included in the notes. And again, anybody who's got any ideas for conversations that they would like us to have here at Social Justice Ireland, please feel free to get in touch. Secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.